0: Uh, last week, I, uh, at, at 10.30 Mass, so every week at 10.30 Mass, um, since school started, we, we went back to doing our, uh, our children's liturgy. Um, so one of the things I do is typically, 10.30 Mass, I'll invite the kids to come up. Uh, so any kids that haven't received their first communion, they come on up. They're up here, and it's usually kind of an awkward moment, so I always like, like to try and break the ice and talk to them a little bit. So last week, if you were at 10.30 Mass, um, I did one of the cruelest things I've ever done to my sister, probably ever in, in, a, in during a Mass. Um, she was here. Uh, we were going to get lunch after because she, the day before, so last Saturday, she turned 40. Um, and I say that because I, I made a point to just pick on her repeatedly that she was turning 40. And I want this to not die And now two weeks later that my sister is now 40 years old because she's old. Anyway, um, so when I invited the kids up, I asked them, I said, and she had no idea I was going to do this. I asked the kids. I looked at them and I was like, so... I have a question. You need to tell me a number. How old do you think is old? And all the kids, they raised their hand, and one of them said 70, and I'm like, yeah. And one of them said 80, and I was like, yeah. And one of them said 90, and I'm like, yeah. 100, yeah. Then one of them said 32, and I was like, get out, right? Um, <laughs> but at one point, I asked the kid, I asked him, I said, how many people here, how many of y'all think that 40 is old? And all of them raised their hand. And then what I did was, and I said, Well, my sister yesterday turned 40, and they kind of looked, and they were like, really? And I said, and she's sitting right there, and I pointed her out, and all the kids turned and wished my sister a happy 40th birthday. I have said the word 40 now about 12 times. I want you to get that my sister is 40 years old. All right, so the thing is, is that this was just a, this is just, we were laughing about it after we went to lunch. We were joking around. My dad looks at me, and he's like, you done did something wrong. You're going to get in trouble. She's going to beat you and all this stuff. And I told her, I said, she can't get me back because she doesn't have a microphone, so it's okay, right? She doesn't need one because she's loud. But anyway, um, I just remember that like we had this kind of exchange. It was really fun, right? And my mom and I were talking, and I, I, she was laughing about it. And I was like, this. would you expect anything less from us? When we were kids, we knew how to fight. We knew how to get at each other. We knew how to aggravate each other. I'm six years younger than her, so I'm, she's 40, and I'm 34, but she's 40. Okay, anyway, um, I, so I was six years younger than her, right? So what that meant was, is all through her life, being the little brother, I was the age that aggravated her the most. So when she was nine, I was three. And I just, like, would accidentally break her Barbies and rip their heads off, right? And then when she was 12 and, like, starting to, like, talk to boys and, oh, my God, and all this kind of stuff, I was six, meaning I just followed her around and would always just, like, be the buzzkill. And then whenever she was 15 and, like, started dating boys, I was the one that would just pop in and go tattle on, mom, on her to mom and dad about all the stuff they were doing that they're not supposed to be doing. The door's closed, mom, and she's like, ah, and we would get in trouble, Right? All through our life, I was the perfect age just to antagonize and aggravate her. So we were really good at fighting growing up. What that meant was is that my mom had to be really good at playing referee. My mom, got, she, she has a lot of Cajun wisdom, and sometimes it comes out colorfully, uh, language and swinging, and you never know what's going to happen. One of her things that she liked to do when we would start fighting, like a, if it was like a family thing, what she would do is she would say, all right, both of you all, come see in the middle of the room, like in the middle of like everybody watching the TV or watching sports or whatever, they would say, okay, hug. And we had to hug in front of everybody, and then we would go to like go, and she's like, no, 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 hold it. I'm like, you you weird, Mom, stop. Like, I don't want to be anywhere near this girl right now, and you're doing this to us, it's just like cruel and unusual punishment kind of stuff. There was one thing that my mom always said, though. Despite the fight, despite the argument, whatever it was, There was one phrase that I always remember my mom saying, and she said it to the point that it was like carved into my sister and I's memory. She would always say, I do not care if you like each other, but you will love each other. She's like, as long as you live under my roof, I don't care if you like each other. I don't care if you get along, but blah, 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 right? You will love each other. My mom, whether she realizes it or not, at a young age, was teaching my sister and I that love is not a feeling, love is a choice. And she was saying, I don't care if you like each other, I don't care if you have the feelings of being close, you will love each other. This is why today, it, it was funny, like last week, my sister calls me, and she just starts talking, and I did my thing where I put her on speakerphone, and then I muted it and just left it there while I was watching TV, and I was just like, okay, whatever, and every now and then, uh-huh, put it back, uh-huh, put it back. It's like putting, it was like putting a quarter in the merry-go-round. She just kept going. It was great. Um, but she would go and go and go. As that's going on, when I hung up, I was like, I don't care about a thing she just said, but I'm going to answer the phone and let her vent. Why? Because I don't have to like her, I just have to love her. It's ingrained in me. It's ingrained in us as a family. I don't care if you like each other, you will love each other. The reason why I bring that up today is because Jesus in our gospel, when he's challenged on what's 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 the most important law, right? He says nothing about liking, but he says everything about loving. The verb he uses is not, you have to like God. The verb that he uses is not, you have to like the other person. The verb he says is, you have to love. Which means, which is a completely different way of approaching life. So let's look at, let's look, because there's two pieces at play here. And they have to go hand in hand. If they don't work together, then we only have half the picture. So what Jesus does is, is, today, after he has already shut down the Sadducees, right? Last week we heard in the Gospel that he had this argument. He goes back and forth, and he shuts down the Sadducees. So they're done. The Pharisees is another group, of the law, another group of the religious elite, another group of the learned people in the Jewish faith. They're the ones that are like the keepers of the law. And one of them, they all kind of get together, they huddle together, and one of them says, I'm going to catch them. The Sadducees shot their shot. They missed, so I'm going to go. And what he does is, is he comes up in front of people in a public setting. He looks at Jesus and puts him on the spot. And he says, Master, if you would, what is the most important law in all of the law? Now, we might not know, but the phrase the law in the Jewish world meant the first five books of the Bible. It was the Torah, right? The first five books of the Bible in the, for a Jewish person is venerated the same way for us as Christians. It's venerated the same way as the Gospels. The Gospels are about Jesus, that's why we venerate them higher than the other books of the Bible. The the Jewish people, they they saw the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, it was written by Moses. Right? So he was the chief prophet, he was the first one. He brought them out of slavery, all these things. He wrote, so like, when they hear the law, they're talking about the first five books of the Bible. In those first five books of the Bible, scholars will say there's about 613 or so laws. So what he's doing to Jesus, he's saying, here's the 613, and he's a lawyer. He knows him front, back, up and down, inside and out, right? So what he's doing is he's trying to catch Jesus to say, Oh, really? You think that one? Well, this is why not. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna come back at Jesus. He's putting Jesus, he's trying to set Jesus up to fail in front of people. And what Jesus does is. He's expecting Jesus to say one of the prohibitions. He's expecting Jesus to maybe say the first of the commandments, thou shalt not do something. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus says two laws that are positive laws, two laws that require us to do something. The first one, he says, is probably one of the most popular of all the scriptures in the Old Testament for a Jewish person. And that is the Shema. It's It's from Exodus. What this is is it's from Exodus, and it's saying you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Right, like that's the first. That's the first one that he uses. Um, if you've ever been to like an Orthodox Jewish home or an Orthodox Jewish place, whenever we went, when I was, um, when we were running the March for Life for a while, we went to a um, to a, a, an Orthodox Jewish retreat center, and what was on the doorpost there were these little these little square things on every doorpost. And what it was is, inside, rolled up, was that first scripture, the Shema, you shall love the Lord your God. It was written in Hebrew, rolled up, and put inside this little box. What they did was, is they kept it on their doorpost, and every time they went in and out, an Orthodox Jewish person would touch it as a way of venerating that prayer. In the Old Testament, they actually would pray it three times a day. It was so well known, it could be almost likened to us with the Our Father. Catholics usually get a bad rap that we don't know Scripture. If anybody ever asks you, can you quote Scripture, just pray the Our Father. Jesus taught it in Scripture, right? We know it. We know that Scripture, it falls off of our tongue. We can say it in five seconds if we really want. We probably will later, right, when we pray the Our Father. Um, But the Shema, it was that well known by the Jewish people. So when Jesus uses this Scripture, when he says this to them as the first law, they know it. And they've been reciting it. And he's saying, you want to base your life on something? Start there. The, the prayer you know, the scripture you know, the part of the law, the part of the Torah that you know the most, start there. And then secondly, he quotes a, a, a one from, another law from Leviticus about loving your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus is saying is that these two things, he's, he's linking them. He's saying these two things are not meant to be separated. Love of God and love of neighbor are linked. They cannot be separated. Love of God and love of neighbor are linked. They cannot be separated. That's why it's such a, it, 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 it's, it's so different, it's so weird, it, it, it breaks, it, it, it causes dissonance when we come to church and we pray and we do all the things, but then we go out and then on our way out of church somebody cuts us off and we say all the words that start with That have four letters, right? Because there's a dissonance in that. Because the relationship that we have with God is supposed to impact the relationship we have with everyone else. It's meant to have a a, a pour-over kind of effect. An overflow effect. But what it does not say is like. What today's gospel does not say is anything about having to like. For example, when it comes to our relationship with God, I'll be the first to admit, there are times that I am absolutely 100% 100 in love with God, but I don't like Him very much. There are times when I'm struggling with something, and I'm really having a hard time, that I go to God, and I'm like, God, right now, you know what? I love you to death, and I'm going to do everything I can. To, to serve you and to, and to act on your commands and act on the way you are leading me. But right now, I really don't like you. Because the cross you gave me is a little bit too heavy right now. There might be times in your life, and there might be times right now for some of us, that, you know what? I, I'm 100% here, Lord. I, I want to do your will. I want to follow you. But you know what? Right now, the cross you have put on my shoulders is a little bit too heavy and I'm not happy with you. Like, I have a lot of desires that are not being met. I'm really struggling with this, and I'm wondering where you are. I will love you, but I might not like you. In the same way, with our relationship with others, there are times we know That we can fall into, we can we can lead into this spot of uh, I I I I might love that person, but right now I really don't like them. There might be people in your life that are close to you. There might be hurt that you carry. You know what? I'm gonna do what I'm supposed to do. I'm gonna do the Christian thing and love them, but I don't really like them. God's not calling us to like everyone, but He is calling us to love. John Paul II um, actually had a, a really interesting take on this kind of concept. Because what he pointed out with John Paul, he, he, was, he was a lot of things. He was brilliant. He was an athlete. He was a philosopher. He was all kind of things. One of the things he pointed out in a lot of his teachings was needing to see the other as a person. The importance of seeing the other as a person. Because as long as we see the other as a person, we can love them. When we dehumanize another, when we dehumanize a group of people, when we dehumanize that side of the aisle, when we dehumanize the people we work with, when we dehumanize the person as just the gossip or just the this or just the that, it becomes easier to, to, to make an excuse of why I don't have to love them. Which is interesting because John Paul was growing up in Poland around the time of the Nazi occupation. And one of the things the Nazis did before World War, World War II as a way to pull off the atrocities that they did against the Jewish people, to pull off the Holocaust, was that they slowly just pulled back different rights that allowed the Jewish person to present themselves as a person. For example, they would close down theaters. They closed down comedy, like comedy spaces. They shut down their music, their art because if they did those things then people used to tend to be more sympathetic to people but if they don't create if they're not artists if they're not theater, like you know if they're not musicians if they're not actors then they can just be seen as animals and then we can do what we want the more we depersonalize the easier it is to not just not like but to not love Make no mistake, that tendency in human beings, that might have happened in a country a long time ago from a government standpoint, but but that happens today in the human heart. Because it's really easy when we disagree with somebody to say, oh, they're just one of fill-in-the-blank people. They're just like that. They just voted for so-and-so last election. They just identify as fill in the blank. The more we dehumanize, the easier it is to not just not like, but to hold back our love. It happens with God too. Because if God is supposed to be a person and He is a person, and I am in love with a person, well now, when we're in a relationship, and there's some give and take, and I will always love you no matter what, regardless of what I get, because I know you want my good. But if I depersonalize it, and God becomes a genie, (laughs) come in, rub the beads of the rosary, and get what I want, and He doesn't come through, well, I don't really need you. Or if he becomes a vending machine, I come in, I put my, I put my change in, right? My, my prayers in, I come to Mass, I do the things I'm supposed to do, and then he doesn't come through, well, I don't really need you. Do we see God, first and foremost, as a person? Do do we see the people that we agree with and disagree with, first and foremost, as people? Because if we don't, it usually gives us an excuse to write them off. It gives us an excuse to, I don't have to love them. Yeah, but, we love everyone, but, mm, you know. If we want to follow what Jesus is saying today, it's a challenge for us. Make no mistake. It, 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 it might be a golden rule that we like to that we like to sing songs about in grade school and we like to share with little kids as, hey, this is how you act and this is how you work and this is how you live. But it's a lot less romantic the older we get. Do we see our God as a person first? Do we see our neighbor as a person first? Because we're not called to like everyone but we are called to love. We are called to choose love, choose the good of the other, even if if it's at our own expense. Today as we come to this Mass, we're coming to not only meet our God, we're not coming only to meet the the Savior of the universe, the creator of everything. We're not only coming to meet Jesus who who preached these words and died on a cross and resurrected, but we're coming to meet Fundamentally, a person. A person who's asking us just to love. Just to respond with love. May as we do that, when we're sent out, that the same love that we respond to the Lord with is the love that we respond to those in our world with. Who might disagree with us. Who might look at the world differently than us. We're not called to like everybody. We're not called to agree with everybody, but we are called first and foremost.